welcome to the Hamburg Aviation Green podcast. My name is Angus Bajant. Last week on the podcast, we talked about the Hydrogen Aviation Lab and the technical and engineering challenges ahead for hydrogen adoption at airports. And this week, we're going to be looking at the hydrogen economy and what needs to happen on the supply side to make all that fuel available that we're all likely to need in aviation. An industry-backed study from 2022 found that 95% of the overall cost of reaching net zero by 2050 will be in the energy production, the delivery side of the, equa- uh, of the equation, with investments in aircraft and propulsion only making up a small part of the overall investment needed. So we thought it was time to have a look over the fence from aviation into the energy sector and find out how the transition to hydrogen adoption is likely to progress. A team from the Institute of Environmental Technology and Energy Economics at the Technical University of Hamburg has published some fascinating work here. And with me to talk today about the supply side challenges in hydrogen is Lucas Sens, lead author on several in-depth studies of the techno-economic challenges ahead. Welcome to the podcast, Lucas. Yeah, thank you very much for having me here, Angus. So let's uh, let's dive in um, to some of the research that your group's been doing. You've done some techno-economic well-to-tank assessment of various supply chains for green hydrogen. You were focused on heavy goods vehicles, but you also looked at production and supply across Europe. Um, what are the main challenges faced in ramping up the hydrogen economy today? Well, I would say like the main challenges for, for hydrogen um, economy is like the high investment which is needed because mm-hmm. we're talking about infrastructure investments. So like infrastructure is not there just not just there for like say five years or 10 years like a car or a truck but it's there for 20 30 or 40 years and this means like we need to be sure for a very long time that this kind of investment is worth it otherwise we would not put our money there right and now we need to build up like a completely or more or less completely new new infrastructure also for hydrogen eh? i mean now we are still using our pipelines for natural gas so we in the beginning, we also need to build up maybe some new pipelines for, for green hydrogen. Um, for sure, we can do some retrofitting in the future, but also you were talking about the production. Also for the production, we need to build up all these kind of electrolyzer technologies, the additional electricity generation technologies and so on. And this is like a very, very huge investment what we need to take. And um, so, and it's just like, it does not pay off after five years. It pays off over time. And um, so this leads to the fact that it's maybe hard for for a private company to invest in it when we know, okay, it's just worth it or the amortization period is longer than 10 years. And additionally, we have like uncertainties. We do not know yet completely where we will use hydrogen and where we might use, um, let's say, green electricity or hydrogen derivatives. So now in this kind of podcast, when I'm talking about hydrogen, I always mean the elementary hydrogen. So not ammonia, methanol or so. Right, right. And um, so maybe in aviation, we will use like hydrogen or we will use like uh, PTF, use like uh, E-carisine. And there's uncertainty. So also here... This leads to the fact that like maybe investments are not crystal clear that they will mm. pay off, and um, this leads like to a big challenge. And of course, also uh, the regulatory framework is like a big issue. Sometimes it's changing a little bit what's classified as green hydrogen, what is not. So as long as this is not completely clear, um, with these kind of uncertainties, um, yeah, there, there might be some kind of challenges to put a lot of money which is needed uh, into this kind of hydrogen economy. 
So how much additional capacity are we likely to need to generate uh, renewable electricity in the future um, in general? So to to uh, produce the amount of green hydrogen that we're likely to need? Well, this like strongly depends also on how much green hydrogen in the end we are using. Um, but just to give you like a general overview over um, like the energy system right now, like the, the peak load in, in Germany is about like 75 gigawatt for electricity supply. And when we're talking about the 100% renewable energy system or electricity system in this case, Okay, depending on the study, we need like twice until six times um, the peak power generation capacities because yeah, the sun is not always shining, as we know here, especially right. in Hamburg. Yeah. And the wind is not always blowing, so mm. we need like additional capacities for the energy or electricity generation. And also we need these kind of storage capacities and hydrogen, for example, for sure. But this would lead to the fact that at least, I said double the capacity, that we don't need seven, uh, 75 gigawatts, but 150 gigawatts mm -hmm. at least, or maybe mm -hmm. even 400, 500. And this is just for the electricity supply. So on the electricity supply in Germany, when we take a closer look, we can see around like roughly 20% of the end energy consumption is electricity. So the other 80%, which is now gasoline, natural gas, and so on, also needs to be substituted. For example, also with hydrogen. And also with this kind of hyd hydrogen, we, we want to use green electricity or mainly green electricity. And so we need like even additional capacities. And now we can do the math, like just for 20%, we need at least 150 gigawatts. So we know like in the future uh, to fulfill also the other 80%, um, we need at least, let's say 500 or maybe 1000 gigawatts of just electricity generation capacities. So how much uh, of our hydrogen, green hydrogen is likely to come, let's just take uh Europe, uh, the EU as, a, as an example, how much of that hydrogen is likely to come from domestic production and how much is going to be imported? Mm -hmm. Also a very interesting question and also here the crystal ball is uh, yeah. giving like different <laughs> yeah. answers. Uh, the best uh, example, for example, is the... Um, yeah, the National Hydrogen Strategy from Germany. Mm -hmm. Recently published, yeah. Exactly, mm -hmm. and uh, it's uh, now a newer version, and the first version, uh, there the share of hydrogen imports was lower than it is nowadays. And also here, I think it's very hard to, to, to distinguish between like elementary hydrogen and ammonia and so on. So often when we're talking about hydrogen imports, it also includes ammonia mm -hmm. um, or methanol. So um, when we're talking about elementary hydrogen, um, most of the studies also assume like a high high fraction of imports. However, if we're taking a closer look um, and digging a lot, uh, digging a little bit deeper into like uh, technical potentials, we can see that in Europe we have like a lot of surface area which we could use for photovoltaic and and wind powers, and so maybe there's also a possibility that Europe can be self-sufficient for, for a green hydrogen production in the future. Um, however, there are a lot of challenges related also about the not-in-my-backyard syndrome that a lot of people do not mm. want to see the windmills uh, yeah, next to their house and so on. So that's another question. Um, but um, my personal opinion, based also on our research, is there's an opportunity that uh, for the green electricity, electricity supply 
supply and for the green hydrogen supply there might be a possibility that Europe or the European Union can be self-sufficient um, which would be also highly attractive due to like let's say reasons of energy security mm -hmm. and so on um, but yeah for this we would need uh, low-cost energy storage options mm. and mm -hmm. I think we're going to talk about this later. Yeah okay so um, so what potential are we looking at for regions like North Africa or or um, other regions of the world to export uh, green hydrogen to markets like Europe? Um, well, also like countries like Northern Africa or like other like the Middle East, um, they can be very promising to export green energy to Europe or to other countries uh, due to the reason that they have like a large potential of uh, unused areas of uh, very high solar radiation, which is constant over the whole year and often also high wind speeds, which means like we have low Uh, energy prices, low green electricity costs, and uh, this would also lead additionally to a low green hydrogen production cost. And um, yeah, the the potential of their production potential is significantly higher than than the forecasted uh, domestic demand. And then they can can export these kind of uh, energy carriers to other countries countries which might be limited uh, limited in yeah uh, in the energy availability. And for sure, they can play like a very important role. And there it comes then to the question, how much does the transportation of the hydrogen cost in comparison to the production? So if like the, the, the combination of hydrogen production in Northern Africa and transportation, um, the cost of these kind of uh, two sections is lower than the domestic uh, hydrogen production uh, in Europe, then it can be economic attractive. However, um, also... Uh, It always is a question of like, um, let's say, energy security and um, yeah, the trade um, between between the countries mm -hmm. um, as we experienced in the last years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so let's uh, have a, a closer look at aviation. As, uh, that's the, our industry, and, and you know, we, we're planning 2035. Airbus is uh, planning to uh, introduce the zero e aircraft using hydrogen as fuel. Um, so that's kind of I suppose for for many people the kind of the kind of date where we're really expecting we have to be working towards a market entry at 2035. Of course, there are other um, air, aircraft manufacturers or companies, Zero Avia or S3 Dynamics, who are already developing uh, retrofit solutions or looking at uh, developing um, a smaller aircraft uh, using hydrogen. But let's just use 2035 as a, as a kind of date. Uh, to, to focus on how much green hydrogen, uh, given your your studies and your work, uh, are we going to require in 2035 and then later on in 2050 when when we are expecting to see a, a large ramp up? Mm -hmm. Also a very interesting question. I mean, as you said in the beginning of, let's say, of the hydrogen aviation, um, we will not have like a lot of airplanes. So when it starts mm. in 2035, mm. when, when we can see maybe a couple or maybe maximum 100 airplanes in 2035, uh, the demand for liquid hydrogen would be very, very low. And we would just have dedicated um, routes, for example, like from, from Hamburg to Rotterdam, which was um, discussed uh, public in mm. public. Mm -hmm. um, but then over time, of course, it would be it would be an increasing demand. And uh, we were just uh, contributing to a study from, from the Steer Group. Mm -hmm. And um, there they did some kind of forecast of like how the liquid hydrogen aviation could be developed in the future uh, in, in the European Union. And uh, they came to, to the result that maybe up to 65% of um, yeah, aviation 
in the European Union could be fueled by liquid hydrogen. So, But when I say 65%, um, it means just the inter-European aircraft traffic. So from mm -hmm. this kind of uh, inter-European aircraft uh, traffic, there could be like 65% um, powered by liquid hydrogen. And when we would translate this, it would be like, um, depending also um, on, on the increasing demand of, of aviation, would be between, let's say, four to, to seven million tons of liquid hydrogen per year consumed just for, for aviation in Europe in the European Union and uh, this is already like a huge demand or, or, or a huge demand of energy um, and but of course always strongly depending from the assumption we're taking and uh, that's why I was also very detailed about these kind of numbers before because um, yeah we know it all it can can vary for very from very low to very high numbers right right so this is always it's forecast you're, you're forecasting 10 15 20 years 30 years in advance of course there's a um, uh, uh, that's 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 a tricky thing to do. Um, but so, if we're looking at the infrastructure and we're looking about costs, have you explored how much it's going to cost to build the in infrastructure to meet that level of demand in 2035? Yeah, happy to answer also this question. So, like we were contributing, like um, the calculation of uh, the investment for a study conducted by the Steer Group, mm -hmm. and there we calculated um, for uh, the green hydrogen aviation in the European Union that up to the year 2050 we would need to spend around 300 billion euros just for the uh, hydrogen supply so for the electricity generation mm -hmm. for, for, for the hydrogen production for the hydrogen transportation uh, up to the handling of the hydrogen at the airport and also for the airplanes so it's a pretty big number 300 billion euros uh, if we compare this uh, for example uh, to the national budget of Germany in 2023 uh, it was 475 billions in total so mm. we can see it's a very very big number um, but also um, we can also compare it with another number for example Saudi Aramco like last year in 2022 uh, their net profit was I think around 180 billion euros so we can see there are also like an energy um, markets there's always a lot of money so it's a very very high investment mm -hmm. however um, we can see also like these kind of energy markets they can also give you like very mm. big returns and so mm. um, it can be worth it I would say yeah yeah I mean for aviation I think the the, the the context that's sometimes given is the overall value of aviation annually to the world economy something like two trillion US dollars or something um, so you know it's um, definitely an industry that's that, that's worth uh, supporting in those kinds of ways but that brings me to to I think the, the really crucial question I mean if we're looking forward to um, to, to, to this period of the market entry, 2035, let's say, uh, the fuel supply will still be limited at, at that stage. Airbus and, and developers of retrofit H2 solutions and airports, of course, they need to be sure that their investments are going to be relatively secure, right? Um, airlines are going to be looking very carefully at the economics of the fuels. And shepherding all this, this kind of whole ecosystem, ideally, are going to be the policymakers at the regional, national and European level. So what advice would you give them? to help them make the right decisions to smooth the road towards the hydrogen adoption? Well, I'm personally, I'm a big fan like of, um, let's say, CO2 trade uh, system. Um, 
if we would have like a CO2 budget and uh, then we have like would have like a trading uh, system and uh, like some kind of market participants, they do not uh, emit a lot of CO2 emissions or they can easily uh, cut these kind of CO2 emissions out by just paying, let's say, 20 euros per, per, per ton of CO2. Uh, then they could uh, sell the, their certificates to like other companies mm -hmm. or other sectors mm -hmm. which have way higher uh, CO2 um, reduction costs so this is first of all I think a very smart solution um, to, to, to achieve like the energy transition overall at the lowest cost possible because it's not about aviation it's about the, like the, the, the completely uh, mm -hmm. landscape of, of energy use but also of agriculture and so on and so on so I think this should be um, the base because um, sometimes Uh, it looks maybe like uh, the fact that battery electric vehicles are the best option to go and then we would just incentive uh, battery electric vehicles and then like maybe like 10 years we have like such a big advance in another technology that there's like um, yeah not battery electric vehicles are the best anymore but maybe fuel cell cars mm. or vice versa so there are a lot of uncertainties and with like a CO2 price Or CO2 trading system, um, we we would be very efficient with tackling this kind of question. However, I think in addition we would also need like subsidies or incentive, incentives um, for implementing new technologies. Because um, when we're talking, for example, about um, hydrogen aviation, like the research and development is, is is very very expensive, and like for companies like like Airbus. They also need to be sure, as we were talking, that like the customers, they also are going to buy the products. So um, it might be then easier just to go um, into sustainable aviation fuels like e-kerosene and, and so on, than to invest into green hydrogen because the, the upfront investments are way higher. So that's why I'm thinking also there needs to be some kind of... Um, Yeah, incentives um, for for also for specific technologies mm -hmm. from the from the politics, um, but also in addition, I think like for, for politics, it's not very easy because um, um, when they want to tackle climate change, there's always like also very strong voices against them. So um, they also have like a very hard job to to, to make the energy transition happening, and um, yeah. Uh, um, that should be also said. So, Lucas, you mentioned the STEER study that has been uh, used a lot of uh, your work, and they looked at various scenarios in aviation using green hydrogen. What did they find out based on your work about uh, ticket prices and airfares, for example? Okay, um, like one of the key findings, like what we were contributing to was... Um, The, the investment which is needed what we were already talking about like the 300 billion euros uh, per year um, but also um, they they did like a very detailed examination about the maybe additional cost of, of um, liquid uh, hydrogen uh, use in aviation in comparison um, to, to kerosene and uh, I think uh, the overall or one of the key results which is still in my mind was like that the cost for per per packs would be around six to seven percent higher compared um, to, to using fossil fuels however they also assumed like uh, um, some additional taxes also especially co2 taxes um, for, for for the fossil kerosene and um, yeah this is like I think a 
very surprising low number, like just 7% uh, more expensive. Me personally, I would be willing to pay this um, for, for, let's say, inter-European flights. Um, however, also here we were talking about the uncertainties and uh, we do not know how everything will develop uh, in detail. So when we're saying, okay, it's 7% higher cost per pax, um, we should always add maybe plus uh, minus 50% because it can vary so much and it's always a look into the crystal ball. So if we just kind of cross-reference that to to a study from from last year, making net zero possible, published by the Mission Possible Partnership and McKinsey, um, they said average annual investments between 2022 and 2050 to get global aviation to net zero are estimated about 175 billion US dollars, about 95% of which will be required for fuel production and upstream assets, which kind of is roughly speaking, I think, um, around this, these kind of like figures, um, you mentioned uh, in, in the study using your data, the total uh, capital uh, expenditure investments 2040 would in that one year would be around 16 billion, uh, 2045, they'd be about 29. You mentioned the 300 billion um, figure for green hydrogen across the whole continent. Um, so that's, I think, and it's a kind of meaningful relationship, you know, across these various various studies. But the, the MPP study, the attitude was, we need a plan for all the hard to abate sectors. And how important do you think it is to approach this from a multi-sector perspective? So when we're talking about green hydrogen adoption, we're not just thinking about, about aviation. We're talking about, you know, this wide uh, uh, scope of uh, other industries that we also have here in Hamburg, you know, heavy industry, harbour, um, logistics and so on. Yeah, I mean, of course, we should not just think um, uh, the, uh, that uh, hydrogen can be used or should be used in aviation because like one of, I think one of the key drivers um, why so many people are talking about hydrogen and why it can be a very promising energy carrier in the future is because we can use it in so many applications and we can store it relatively easy compared to electricity so i think there is not even a sector where we cannot use use hydrogen we can use it in the electricity generation when we have like dark doldrums um we can use it for all kind of traffics like we can use it in cars where it's maybe arguably not the best option um but we can use it in heavy truck um vehicles or heavy duty vehicles uh, we can use it in shipping we can use it in aviation we can use it in the heavy industry what what you mentioned we can or we need to use it for for some kind of um let's say bike chemicals or like ammonia for fertilizer industry uh, we need to use it for methanol, which we also still need in the ch chemicals, uh, ice chemicals, and uh, so there are like it's like a large variety of of, um, of of use cases, and this is also like one of the reasons why hydrogen can be so attractive because we have like this kind of sector coupling energy carrier. Because nowadays, when we're talking or when we used to talk about the energy transition in, in, in Germany, it was most of the time just green electricity electricity generation and there we have like 50 percent renewables which is like a very good achievement but like this kind of transition or the um, conversion from the green electricity to hydrogen enables us also to use a molecule in all the other sectors and um, yeah it's a very promising molecule and uh, also when we can use it in all the different sectors it means like the specific costs will decrease because we can 
just use the same infrastructure for, for different purposes. We can use, for example, um, the pipeline network to supply um, green hydrogen to, to steel makers, maybe to, to supply it to airports, and there we can liquefy the hydrogen. Uh, we can use it to supply like the heavy-duty vehicle uh, filling station, and uh, you can see there are like, like a lot of numbers of use, case, use cases, and this means like um, the overall um, cost per kilogram of hydrogen would be significantly lower. And um, yeah, that's um, a very, very important point when we're talking about like uh, the energy transition for the whole society. Tell me about the salt caverns. Why are salt caverns important or what kind of a role could salt caverns play? Yeah, that's um, also like a very interesting question um, because when we are talking also about green hydrogen, we can store it um, in like a pressure tank. But these kind of pressure tanks, they're significantly cheaper as batteries, but still relatively high in costs. And when we're talking about like a closely 100% renewable energy system, we still have like the uh, volatility of our wind power electricity, of our solar um, availability and so on. And to cover like these kind of dark doldrums, we need like very low cost energy storage. And this is like uh, salt currents is like an option. Like uh, in the paper we published, we can show that, for example, hydrogen production costs, um, they can be lowered or hydrogen supply costs, they can be lowered between 25 to 50 percent just due to the reason because we have salt currents. Because they are so much cheaper or they are forecasted to be so much cheaper than the, the, the classical pressure tank that we do not need so much electricity generation capacity because we can store more and more, more hydrogen um, for, to a reasonable uh, amount of cost. And uh, also we can yeah, use more of the energy which, which is available because we, we, it's, it's, it's cheaper to store. And this would also lead um, in the end to the fact that uh, it's more likely for, for the European Union that um, we can be energy sufficient in the future. And here maybe also like from, from the national perspective of Germany, we do not have like the best solar radiation, for example. So we are rather poor in these kind of resources, but we have like a lot of salt caverns or salt formations, which can be potentially used for salt caverns. So this can be a very big asset also for Germany and a big contribution from Germany to the uh, climate neutral European Union that we have like a lot of low cost um, energy storage systems here here. Uh, in Germany, and um, yeah, it's definitely a point where we where we need to do more research on on salt currents because they're looking very promising. Lucas Sens, thank you so much for uh, your time today. It's been great talking to you, and uh, we'll be linking to some of your fascinating research in the show notes, uh, so people can uh, read up on some of the details on some of the issues we've been talking about today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much also from my side and also for having me here. And uh, the pleasure was also on my side. So thank you very much, Angus. Awesome. This episode is the last in the first series of Hamburg Aviation Green. We hope you've enjoyed meeting some of the people working in Hamburg on the transition to decarbonized air travel. Many thanks again to my guests in the first season, Roland Gerhards from ZAL, Center for Aeronautical Research, Michael Eggenschwiler, CEO of Hamburg Airport, Mario Vesco from Sustainable Aerolab, Christian Coyne of Compressed Tech, and Antonio Rahn 
of the German Aerospace Center. If you like the podcast, give us a thumbs up and a rating on your platform of choice. Tell your friends and colleagues about us. And if you've got any feedback, do drop us a line via Hamburg Aviation's LinkedIn channel or email us at podcast at hamburg-aviation.com. Bye for now. Thank you.